Amen. You may be seated. You know, for many people, the term religion really is full of a host of negative connotations. When people kind of think of religion, they think of really monotonous rituals, dreary routines. They often think of religion of having absolutely no practical application or, or good or having any good for real life, where real life is lived. You know, the number of people in America that claim to have absolutely no religious affiliation at all is growing at an unbelievable rate. They they're actually have their own name. They're, they're now referred to as the nuns, not the N-U-N-S as in a uh, Catholic nun, but, but rather as the N-O-N-E-S because they claim to have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And what we find is, just in the last five years, that that group of nuns has grown from 15% to 20% of Americans in the United States. And so what we find is, is that even adults, like, uh, for example, uh, adults that are 30 years old and younger, one-third of those adults refer to themselves, I guess, if you will, as being nuns in essence. In other words, they have no religious affiliation. And here's the key, 88% of them surveyed suggested that they have absolutely no desire any time in the future to even entertain anything that has to do with religion. So this is where we find ourselves. This is the culture that we find ourselves in. Now, what's interesting to me is that the Bible would agree with the nuns, at least in one particular area, and that is that much of what we call religion really is worthless. And the Bible is filled of examples of that. We can look in the New Testament and we see the, the religion of the Pharisees. And we would say that even though they were incredibly devout, even though they were constantly doing all they could to follow every jit, jot and tittle of their man-made laws, really it's worthless. It really doesn't do anything for them, at least nothing good. But at the same time, the Bible doesn't paint all religion as being wicked or evil or worthless it actually says that some religion is good. In fact, the way that it refers to it in the passage that we're reading today is it speaks of religion as pure and undefiled by God. In other words, the scriptures say that not all religion is marked by dead formality, but some of it has to do with a living faith. And not all religion is removed from everyday life, but rather it's woven into the very fabric of, of every believer's life. Let me, let me say it this way. In other words, the Bible says that there is some religion that is acceptable to himself. Some religion that is acceptable to God. Some that is not, but some that is. Now look, this morning we said before that we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper. And I want you to understand about celebration that every week we talk about the gospel. And the reason is because we're only here because of the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? So what we're doing is every day we're studying the Word of God together, we're just unpacking what the gospel now looks like and how it's supposed to be lived out in our everyday life. What does the Bible say about that? But there's something unique about this day. About once a month we try to come together and we observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and there's something just really neat, very, very kind of, I don't know, just, just moving about taking that bread, which represents the broken body, of Jesus Christ, and, and taking that juice, which represents the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and having those two symbols to, to, to eat and to be able to drink of that really reminds us of the essence of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us, that he died on the cross to be able to make a way for us to now be made right unto God. 
And there's something really special about that. And the Bible teaches us that what we ought to do is that when we come to the Lord's table, we ought to examine ourselves. We ought to look at our hearts. We ought to look at our faith. The Bible says that we ought to make sure that we're taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, which would mean one of two things. That number one, that we make sure that we're in the faith. And number two, that we're walking in submission and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So today, how I want to do that before we get to the Lord's Supper, I want you to ask yourself this question. This question. The religion that you're holding on to, the religion that you say is yours, that you're trying to live out in each and every day, the religion that you're, that you're gripping onto and you say that is yours, let me ask you this question. Is that religion acceptable unto God? Well, the only way really to be able to answer that is really through the scriptures. Because in the passage before us this morning, what James is going to do is he's going to give us three marks of a true acceptable religion unto God. If your religion is marked by and defined this way, then guess what? Then it's real. Then it's acceptable. What are these particular marks? We're going to look at them very quickly this morning. First of all, we see this. We see a religion acceptable to God is marked, first of all, by a controlled tongue. By a controlled tongue. How many are failing already? All right? We just started. We haven't got into it. By a controlled tongue. Here it is. Verse 26. If anyone thinks that he is religious... And does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now, to really understand what James is saying, we've got to understand the context in which he's writing this. And the context is set up really back in verse 22. Remember, we, we talked about this last week when he said, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Remember what he said. He says that people like you and I, who are constantly being confronted with the word of God, exposed to the word of God, that there is a clear and present danger for all of us. That clear and present danger is that because we're being exposed so much to the word of God, that we can actually begin to think that we're being transformed in the image and likeness of Christ, which is our goal, when in all actuality we're not because we're just filling our head with all these truths. He says, if all you're doing is learning the truths but not living out the truths, then you and I are deceiving ourselves. We're not becoming more like Jesus Christ. We may learn more about him, but we have to, we have to do what it is that, that we're learning, that the Bible is saying that we're ultimately doing. But now, check this out. He says, so if you're just hearing and not doing, you're deceiving yourself. But he says, but this is how deceptive the heart is. He says, you can even be about doing a bunch of stuff and still be in danger of deceiving yourself. Notice what he says in the scriptures. He says, if someone thinks he is religious, that is, if someone considers himself a religious man, I want you to look at that word religious because it's a rare Greek word. In fact, this is the only time in all the New Testament this particular Greek word is used, which always makes a challenge for interpretation because if it's used a lot, then you can look at the different contexts of how it's used. But here, uh, overall, uh, most scholars believe that it generally speaks of the outward observance of religious ceremonies. So here's the picture. The picture of, is of a guy who feels like he's on the right track, feels like he's doing all the things he's supposed to be doing. He's checking all the boxes. He's going where he's supposed to go. He's doing what he's supposed to do. And the Bible says that this man is in danger of deceiving himself if the truth that he is hearing and living out isn't ultimately impacting his heart. If there's no heart change, if there's no ultimate transformation, 
And the Bible is always warning us against this kind of religiosity, of just doing kind of religious things. For a first century Jew, they would have tons of religious things for them to do. If they were in Jerusalem, of course, he's not speaking to them right here because they're dispersed. But what, what would it look like? Well, going to the temple, going to the synagogue, be able to follow all the different religious festivals. They'd make sure that all of these things were in check. What does it look like for the 21st century Christian? Well, make sure that I go to church when the doors are open. Make sure that maybe uh, I come you know, every time. Maybe I go on the mission trip. Maybe I give on Sunday morning. Maybe I go to a small group and take part in a Bible study. And we're looking. We're look. hey, we're doing pretty good. We're doing all of these religious things. And he says, even we who are doing those things are in danger of being deceived if what we're doing outwardly is not having an impact on our heart. And the Bible warns us against this. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3 and verse 1, it's that the angel writes to Sardis and he says this. He says, you have, the church at Sardis, he says, you have a reputation of being alive. He says, but you are dead. In other words, Sardis was like all the rape. It was the big mega church. It was the one that had something for everybody. You know, that's what people are looking for. I love, you may be visiting the church and they go, we want a church that has something for everyone. Guess what we do? His name is Jesus. It's for everyone, all right? He's for everyone, right? And they're like, no, what I mean is I'm at age 63 and I'm gonna be 64. Do you have something for 63 and 64-year-old senior men who retired and are now living in a condo out at the beach? And you're like, well, let me see. Yeah, a small group with all different types of people come and be a part of the church, right? And so people are wanting that and they're wanting these things. And this particular church had it all. Everything you could imagine. It was the kind of church that sits there and says, hey, they have that. Why don't we become like that? And he says, look, you've got all this thing, all these religious going-ons and activities. He goes, but when you really take a close look, you're dead inside. Your religion is dead. There's no transformation. Uh, Jesus said in, in, in Matthew chapter 23 to the, to the religious leaders, he says, you know what? You're like whitewashed tombs on the outside. You're beautiful on the outside. You, 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 you have all these religious acts that you're doing. He goes, but you are filled with dead men's bones. You're dead, which means that your religion is dead. Again, I, I love the way that Paul says it in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2. He says, some having the form of godliness, but denying its power. It's the type of people who can speak it all, who seem to be doing it all, but yet there's no inward power of the Holy Spirit that is allowing them and giving them ability to live the life of Christ inside. Do you see the deception that he's talking about here? And now, how do we know? Here's the question. How do we know if we're deceiving ourselves? We're going about doing all this work. How do we know? What is a true indication of what we're doing and our religion is truly acceptable to God? He says, all you have to do is listen. What is it that's coming out of your mouth? He says here, he says, he says this, he goes, what if this man does all of these things, but he does not bridle his tongue? The picture, and he's going to use this word picture again in chapter 3. The word picture is, is basically of a wild stallion trying to be controlled with this, this, this bridle with no success whatsoever. And he says it's kind of like the man who's going about, he's bringing his family to church on Sunday morning, he's making sure that he's in small groups, he's making sure that he's doing, you know, one of the community groups, he's doing all this, but yet his mouth is demonstrating to him that all that stuff is really doing no good whatsoever. You know, I think it's interesting that oftentimes, at least I do, I often think of godly people who speak a lot of stuff. In other words, I define somebody if they really know Jesus and they know a lot about the word of God because of all the words, the many words in which they're using. You with me? They get up and they begin to spout out all the authors they're reading. 
They begin to spout out, you know, all the different uh, commentaries that have really impacted them. And they begin to talk about really all of these and use these big theological terms. And sometimes we kind of look at that and go, wow, that dude has really got it going on. I mean, that really guy really knows what he's doing. Let's make him an elder, right? Because he, he knows big words. And, and you kind of look at him. But it's interesting because the word of God says, hey, look, true godliness is not so much identified by how much or what it is that a person's saying, but rather their ability to be able to control their tongue. To really demonstrate not what's coming out of their mouth, but what's staying in their mouth or what, what's not coming out of it. You know, it's interesting to me, again, that the mouth is capable of all kinds of wicked things. How many would agree with that? Horrible, despicable things. And you know that old saying, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Hogwash, right? I mean, hit me with a stone. Uh, I mean, forget, don't really. But you know, but, but, but there are things that you have been called and things that people can say about you, man, that just last and last and last. And in chapter three, and I don't want to get into this too much, but in chapter three, again, he's going to unpack all the wickedness uh, of the mouth. You know, the mouth is capable of saying all kinds of off-color things, right? It's able to say dirty jokes and make little innuendos and things that are completely inappropriate. The tongue can really spread a great deal of lies, all of those things it can do. But I think the particular sin of the mouth, that he has a particular sin in mind here, when he's talking about the bridling of the tongue, I I think what he's referring to is he's talking about an uncontrolled, slanderous tongue that is critical and judgmental of others. Okay, so get this. When you get into a church and you get saved, all of a sudden you begin to realize what is in vogue and what is not, right? What you can do and what you can't. This is fun. I love to see new believers because they're so fresh. I, I, I know some new believers, man, they're, they're the, some of the roughest guys you've ever known. They get saved, they come in, and they're just dropping F-bombs all over the place, right? And you're like, whoa, whoa. And people are like, ha, ha, ha. You know, like freaking out and like, calm down. It's a word. It's going to be okay. He just came to Jesus Christ. He'll figure it out, okay, right? And so they come in, and, and you meet some folks like this, but it doesn't take very long for that guy to go, man, you know, that dirty joke didn't go over well in small group. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know, you know, what the deal is. Or, you know, I dropped the F-bomb right at the first perfect spot, and people looked at me like I was crazy. These are not good things to do. So here's the deal. So what we do is, what we do is, you and I learn the whole Christian life thing, right? We know what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. What, what people are going to look at us to appear godly and what's not to look godly. You guys with me, right? And so even if we're thinking it, we're not going to say it because it's not going to go over well in small group once again, right? So we know to stay away from that. Here's what's crazy, though. About this particular sin, speaking evil and judgmental against other people, no matter how hard you try, you can't hide it. You can fake all the other stuff, but you can't fake this. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what happens is this. So you get all these religious folks all together, and they look so perfect, and they look so wonderful on the outside, but then the moment that they have a chance to be able to backstab or talk ill of somebody, they begin to spew a bunch of stuff about someone else. And he says, this is an indication, just very clearly, that guess what? Your religion that you say that you're holding on to is absolutely worthless. If it doesn't change your heart so that what you're speaking is edifying rather than demeaning, then that particular religion is worthless. So let me ask you this quick question before we take the Lord's Supper. How are you doing with that? How's that going for you? I mean, I find myself, to, to, to be really honest, in the midst of religious things, 
And I may turn every once in a while and find myself speaking in a way that I ought not to be speaking about someone else. Have, have you ever done that? I mean, you're sitting there, and here's spiritual things. And, and here's, we're so good at it that what we can actually do is we can make it sound spiritual. Have you ever gotten that? Listen, man, I just got to tell you about this. And look, I'm not gossiping. Look, if you say I'm not gossiping, then the chances are you're probably gossiping. You, you got that, right? And so what we do, I, I love this. Let me, let me say this very quickly. Calvin says it the best as he normally does. He says, when people shed their grosser sins, they're extremely vulnerable to, to contract this complaint. A man will steer clear of adultery, of stealing, of drunkenness. In fact, he will be a shining light of outward religious observances and yet will revel in destroying the character of others under the pretext of zeal, but it is a lust for vilification. So tear him down so that you ultimately look good. So how are you doing with that? Second, we see a religion acceptable to God is marked by the care for the helpless. Not only the control of the tongue, but also the care for the helpless. Notice in verse 27, the Bible says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. Okay, got to make this little kind of clarity if I can. I don't want us to understand James as though he's giving a definitive list of everything it takes to have a pure religion. He's not saying, hey, this is all there is to pure religion, these three things. He's not doing that. What he's doing is he's saying, hey, listen, generally, if, if, if somebody who's truly born again, a born again, blood washed Christian, these are just some of the characteristics that you'll find in their life. They'll be able to control their time. He says they're not going to be speaking evilly of other people if their particular religion is, guess what, is acceptable to God. And guess what else they'll do? They'll also take care of the helpless. You know, it amazes me how many times the Bible, doesn't it amaze you if you read through the word of God, how many times the Bible speaks about caring for widows and orphans? When I was a kid, I mean, my dad asked me, he says, so what do you think it's about? Answer Jesus, okay? My answer, taking care of widows and orphans. That's what I told him. I said, Dad, everywhere you go, there, it's just it talked about widows and orphans, widows and orphans, widows and orphans. Now, what we're doing, now notice this. Old Testament, Psalm 68, verse 5, God is viewed as this, the father of the fatherless and a defender of the widows. So you want to know what's on God's heart? God, I just want to know your heart. Guess what's on God's heart? Widows and orphans, all right? And then guess what? He says, because it's on his heart and because we're supposed to have the heart of God, Isaiah 1:17, he says this to his people. He commanded them to defend the cause of the fatherless and to plead the case of the widow. You got that? Now we get to the New Testament, and James says, you want to know what it really looks like to follow Jesus Christ? Take care of the orphans. Take care of the widows. That's what it's like. Now, I need to kind of make a quick correction here so that we understand. James, again, is not saying that the only people that you and I are responsible to look after and the only people in the world that really need help is widows and orphans. That's not what he's saying. In context, understand, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, they were the poorest of the poor, the most helpless amongst them. They were, as he says, he says that they were in their greatest affliction. The word affliction there means pressure. In other words, these two groups of people were under the greatest pressure in society just to be able to survive, just to be able to find enough food during the day to be able to eat, to sustain the basic means of life. They were the poorest of the poor. But certainly, God is using this as an indication of all, as an umbrella of everybody that is helpless. I'm not talking about laziness. I'm talking about helplessness. So it could, it could apply to so many people. It could apply to a senior adult. It could apply to a middle-aged homeless man. It can, it, it can refer to a struggling family with too little income and, and, and a lot of different children. Let, let me boil it down to you just very simply. I, th I think this is what James is saying. I think that in one way, James is saying any religion 
that seems to simply help you, but not lead you to help others in need around you, is not acceptable religion to God. Now, I want you to, I want you to think about this for a minute. First of all, listen how John says it. First John 3, 17 and 18, he says, If anyone has the world's possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in love. This is an illustration by D.L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody. Somebody came to him one day, and he was trying to boast, and he said to, to Moody, he said, I've been on the Mount of, Transfer, uh, of Transfiguration for five years. Remember in the New Testament, the, the, th- the disciples, the inner core is there with Jesus, and Jesus kind of peels back, and they see all of his glory. Do you remember that? And he goes, man, I've been on the Mount for five years. This is what Moody says to him. Moody says, how many souls have you led to Christ during that time? He says, well, I don't know, he replied. He says, have you led any, said Moody. And, and, and the man says, I, I don't think, or I don't know that I have, answered the man. And he says, well, said Moody, sit down, be quiet. We don't want that kind of mountaintop experience. When a man gets so high that he can't reach down and save others, there's something wrong. You know, when I think about how much I love to read the Word of God and how much I love to study it, and I know many of you do as well, why you're here, you love the Word of God, you love to be in the Word of God, you love to hear the Word of God. But let me just tell you something. For us to, if we think that it's all about us and how much we can get, and every time you come to the house of God, go, man, I'm going to get, I'm going to get, I'm going to get, I'm going to get. Or your mind is thinking all the time of your job and what you're going to buy and what you're going to do and all of these things. And you think that God has given you all of these riches just for you, your religion's doing you no good. What good is it, church? I mean, let me just, let me ask you this. What good is it if you rejoice over all the blessings of God and you keep them to yourself, but you don't even know who's in need around you? This week, how many people, or within the last month, how many of you have been absolutely aware of those who are in need just in your regular oikos, just in your regular everyday life? And how many of you have done something about it? Look, I'm saying the same thing. Here's the trouble for me sometimes. sometimes, And I'm not talking about just coming like on Saturday morning or going to Gracie's Kitchen. People are doing great with that. But I'm just talking about on an everyday basis. Do you even know who the helpless are? Can you name one? If we're coming together and we're falling into the riches of God's word and we're heaping all of this up, but it's not any kind of religion that takes the blessings that we receive from God and then moves it and passes it on to those who are helpless, I'm not so sure that that religion is much good, says James. There's a third thing. Third thing is this. We see a religion acceptable to God is marked by a pursuit of holiness. Now notice that last little tag on verse 27. He says, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, when James speaks of the world, he's not speaking about, you know, the ocean and the mountains and the geckos and, and, and the little hamsters that we have at our house, all right? He's not talking about that kind of physical world. He's talking about the sinfulness of humankind. He's, it's encompassing all of humankind, all of their sinfulness, all of our sinfulness, let's say it this way, and all of the ways that we choose to live out that sinfulness. It's the ways of a sinful world. That's what he's referring to here. And he says the believer, the true believer in Jesus Christ, the one who has a religion that is true and acceptable unto God, he says this particular religion uh, for, for believers, we seek to try to keep away from all that stuff. 
We don't want to have anything to do with it. If you look at the word keep, it's actually in the present tense, which means that it's not a one-time thing. It's not like, hey, listen, guys, let's just do away from that this week. We want to have kind of a spiritual time in our life. Let's just do away with this. It means to keep on keeping on. It means that you never stop battling the world and the things of the world. You want to be removed from those things which are ultimately sinful. You just don't want to have anything to do with it. It has nothing to do with legalism ever. Well, you don't want to be legalistic about your music and about your movies. No, you don't want to be legalistic about it, but you certainly want to be pleasing to God. You want to be honoring to God, and you know as well as I do, we are incredibly impacted by the things of the world. Yes? I can't tell you how many men have become discontented with their wives simply because of what they look at. I, I, I can't tell you. And then you sit there and go, yes, it's a man problem. No, it's a woman problem too. Because women, you need to put down your stupid books that read about all of this romantic type stuff because the truth of the matter is it's doing the same exact thing in your heart as it is in the mind of man when he's looking at pornography. Making you discontented with what you have. And so don't tell me that these things don't impact us. Are y'all with me this morning? It's really quiet in here. Is it because of the message? All right. So it, I don't, is it me? All right, so, so we understand that. And so what we want to do is we want to keep this away. How do we, how do we keep on keeping these things away? couple things, three things. First of all, reject the false standards. Do you understand that our standards are not the world's standards and the world's standards ought not to be our standards? And we ought not to take our moral and ethical cues from the world. You see it in churches and denominations all the time. Hey, homosexuality is okay. All right, well then let's embrace it already, okay? Not, let's not go by the word of God. Let's just embrace what the world is telling us to do and then, you know, maybe the world will like us a little bit more. The world's not supposed to like us more. You got that, right? And so, so, so that's one thing. What else? A Christian also rejects its lies. Do you know the world is constantly lying? What it's saying is, hey, listen, here's how you can be happy. Have, have anybody ever bought into this one? Any, anybody ever buy into the lies of the world about happiness? Hey, if you have this, and if you have that, and if you do this, and if you do that, you're going to be happy. Any happiness? Maybe for a season. Here's how the world thinks. Okay, if you just have enough of something equals happiness. If you just have enough power, if you just have enough money, if you just have enough sex, if you have enough of these things, it's going to equal happiness in your life. Well, how does that work out? Follow that line of thinking just for a minute. Well, if those three things bring happiness, then the people with the most of those things should be the happiness, happiest people in the world, right? So the person with the most money should be the happiest person in the world. Do you believe that? J. Paul Getty, one of the richest men who ever lived, right, on his deathbed said, I would give it all up for one meaningful relationship. Does that sound like happiness to you? Alexander the Great, right, most, one of the most powerful men in the world, in his early 20s conquers the whole known world. He gets done with conquering it, and then he weeps on his bed because there was nothing left to do. And what about, you sit in there going, man, if I could just have enough sexual fulfillment, then I'll be happy. Well, then the person who gets the mess is having the most sex is the happiest, and I don't mean to be graphic, but so the prostitute is the happiest person in the world, really? No, see, the world says the way to happiness is through a direct pursuit of the things of this world, and the Bible says the truth is direct, full happiness never comes in direct pursuit, but it is a byproduct of a full submission to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where true happiness comes in. So what do we do? 
We, 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 we reject these things. We reject the false standards. We reject its lies. Third, the Christian repels the world's pressure. The world is capable of placing extraordinary pressure on the Christian life. And guess what? What's amazing about the pressure is not only the weight of it, but its consistency. It never gives up. The lost world never gives up. If they can't get something passed in Congress first, do they give up and say, we're never going to revisit? No, they will continue to press and press and press and press until what? Until they get it approved. They'll never give up. So what the scriptures tell us is this, is that we are not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind through what? Through the word of God. So let me ask you this last thing. How's the whole personal holiness thing kicking for you? What are you watching? What are you listening to? What are you opening and exposing? What are you, what are you reading in your life? Again, I, I'm not trying to be dogmatic in a sense that, hey, just stay away from all these things and everything is going to be good. But what I'm saying is your heart wants what it wants. And when you read certain things that are not of God, it's because your sinful heart wants it. Got it? The things that we see and we open ourselves up to these things. But how is your pursuit of, happy, uh, of holiness? Is it consistent? You know what I find myself doing? Even in old life, and my, my son brought this out to me the other day, and it was just speaking like a prophet in my life. He goes, Dad, it's amazing how many things, even in my own age, that you used to have a problem with that you don't have a problem with anymore. Some of that is true in the right way. Some things I thought were a really big deal, but really according to the Bible, it's really not that big of a deal. Got it? But you know what? Sometimes it was a big deal then, and it should be a big deal now. I've just become complacent. I've become hardened to the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit and those things which are holy. So as we're about to take it to the Lord's Supper, let's just wind this down here. How are you doing? How's your religion? How's your mouth doing? How is your desire and your help and your desire to help those that are helpless? How, how, how is your own pursuit of personal happiness going? How are all these things looking in your religion, in your pursuit of Jesus Christ? Here, here's what I want you to know. Say we get to the end of that, and most of us are honest, and we're like, dude, I'm like D minus F plus, if there is such a thing. Or I'm, I'm not doing nearly as well as I can. I'm not going to sit there and tell you to go throw and trash everything away and get rid of your television. All that stuff may be good, and, and go out and find a poor person to give you know, a McDonald's hamburger to. I'm not, I'm not laying that out. Here's what I'm going to call you to do first before you begin to act. Call out to the only one who can change your heart. The reason that our actions are different of a believer is because their heart is different. We need a new heart. We need God to come in and give us new desires and fresh desires. And he does. When he saves us, he gives us all that. He regenerates us. He puts his spirit inside of us. But like you and me, we get a little bit polluted by the world in which we're living. So we have to come back again and say, God, would you wash us clean? Would you wash us afresh? God, I'm not as sensitive as I thought that I was. Coming in here, I thought I was doing good just showing up. But I see in my heart I've got so much further to go. But we just cry out to God and say, God, change my heart this morning. For some of you, there just needs to be salvation. Some of you just need to be born again. You need to come and say, God, change my heart. Forgive me of my sin. God, I understand that you died for me, and by faith, I'm repenting of my sin. I'm turning, and I'm accepting what you did on the cross for me so that I can have a right relationship with God. If you want to know more about that, I'm going to be down here in just a minute. We'd love to pray. Can we stand this morning? Let's stand. We're going to pray. Ashley's going to sing. And this is a time for us to get our hearts right before we go to the Lord's Supper this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, we come. We love you. We thank you.
We thank you for the word that was preached, but now we need to respond to you. May we call out in faith this morning to you. God, after this week, I'm, I'm not doing nearly as good as I thought.